Hello again, this is Jude Dahlia, and welcome to Don't Stay in Your Lane. Today we're talking to Amanda Natividad, and she started off as in marketing, head of marketing, and is now a marketing architect, which is the first time I've ever heard that term and maybe the first time you've heard of it, heard of it too. Um, we have a great chat about her very windy path, where she got to where she is, and also she has her own podcast that will be linked below. Please check it out and hope you enjoy. Good morning, Amanda. Thank you so much for being here today. How has your week been going? It's good. Thanks for having me, Sajude. Well, your journey, I think, is one that a lot of viewers want to listen to. Not viewers, listeners. This is a podcast. Viewers <laughs> on TikTok. You can see clips on TikTok. <laughs> so how about we get started? Like, what's your current job title and what does that mean? Because it's quite an interesting one. Yeah. So I have a completely made up title. I am the marketing architect over at SparkToro, uh, the audience research company. So Every new title had to be made by someone, though, before it became mainstream. Like, no one knew what a product (laughs) manager was in the 80s, right? That's true. Well, the reason we went with this title, though, is because, you know, when I was in talks with Rand and Casey about joining, you know, we knew that to start, at least, this would be an individual contributor role. It's their first hire, so it's really just the three of us at the startup. Amazing. And so, like, a lot of the work I do is it certainly is marketing-focused. Yeah. But... Yeah, I'm doing a lot of marketing first, but a lot of it is focused on improving the overall customer and user experience. Amazing. And then kind of setting the foundation for future marketing efforts. So it didn't feel appropriate to be like, oh, marketing director, because it isn't really that. So we we went with marketing architect because we saw this as a role that would kind of set the foundation for some future like marketing product, uh, user experience stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. How does it feel being the third out of a team of three? It's a lot of fun. I think it's always cool to be an early hire at a new startup. And I'm very much a doer in my career at this point. Like um, I've had a lot of great opportunities to help manage teams, to manage people, to be an individual contributor. And so at this moment, it's really fun to be able to have that direct impact on the work by actually doing it. But then also that I come with enough experience now where I know that I'm not just trying to guess how something should be done. Now I know like, oh, this is how this should work. And here's how we should promote this event and stuff like that. That's fair. What's the biggest thing you miss from a big company? The snacks, I think. (laughs) I miss the micro kitchens and the free lunches. Yeah, that's (laughs) The nice coffee, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's why they have those, right? Like they have snacks for that reason. Yeah. Okay, cool. How did you get to becoming a marketing architect? I'm going to, that's a lot of K's in one, or the syllables aren't matching up with how I can speak right now. (laughs) Uh, No, you're good. Yeah, I mean, so marketing is actually kind of a third career for me. I started, I went to college for, to study mass communications, basically. And I really thought I was going to be a journalist. Like that, like early in high school, I felt like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a print journalist. And so after finishing college, I worked at one of the early sort of digital media and tech blogs, paidcontent.org, where I was um, an editorial producer, worked there for a number of years, then worked at GigaOM by way of acquisition. GigaOM is a tech news blog. So I really felt like, oh, this is my career now. But I think just along the after several years in the industry, I just kind of felt like, oh, I think maybe I want to do something else. Like I'm really passionate about food. Um, and so I decided to go to culinary school. I had the intention of becoming a food writer, but also didn't really look into it that much. I think once I dived in, I realized, oh, there are only like 
10 food writing jobs in the US and they're all taken. So, okay, I guess I got to figure something out. And then I picked up random freelance work. Yeah. Yeah. There should be more food writers. Like everyone eats. There's lots of restaurants. Yeah. We should definitely have more food, but I think it's hard to read about. Like I cannot read about a dish before I eat it. I just need to eat it. Right. Or you're like, I don't want, or maybe you don't really want to read it. Like you're probably interested in it or you think you are, but then once it comes down to it, you're like, I don't want to read this. I'll just eat it. (laughs) So it could be that. I think there are a lot of people with ideas about food and opinions about food. But as far as those institutional writing jobs go, there are so few. Yeah. But as I was doing that, I I picked up some random marketing related freelance work, even though that wasn't my background. It was just because I had experience running social media accounts. I knew I could write well. So it just kind of made sense to pitch things like, oh, can I write a blog post for you? Or like, can I help with your social media? Those were just things I knew how to do. And then as I was figuring out my job hunt, I started looking at interesting food-related startups. At the time, there was a lot of like funding going, there was a lot of VC funding going into the food space. So I was kind of uniquely positioned for that. So I would, you know, did a bunch of cold emails, reached out to these food startups, and it eventually worked out. I um, ended up getting a job at NatureBox, which is a, it's a direct-to-consumer snack company, And when I reached out to them, I was kind of just like, look, I don't really have marketing experience, but here are some things I can do and can do well. Do you think there's going to be an opportunity for someone with my skill set? How did you learn to sell yourself like that? Was it, were you selling yourself as a child? Like at what point do you think like, okay, for me to get something, I need to pitch myself in a way where I'm providing value off the bat? God, that's a good question. You know, I I feel like it might've just, it might've really come from my journalism, my tech journalism experience and starting to go to industry conferences. And I mean, at the time I was like 21, 22, I was young and I looked really young. And so at these events, yeah, people look at me and tell me I look 35, even though I'm 25. So I get upset because you do look young. (laughs) (laughs) We both look 25, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. But like at these industry events, like people wouldn't really talk to me because they probably thought I was someone's kid or they'd be like, oh, who are you here with? Yeah. Like with the implication being that I'm someone's kid or like someone's younger sister. And so I kind of just, I think without realizing it, I probably just got some kind of chip on my shoulder where I always just kind of felt like after that, I always kind of felt like, oh, I should probably kind of not prove why I'm there, but sort of back it up. Like if someone's like, what are you doing here? I'd be like, oh, I'm a journalist and I'm covering this topic. And I'm like, boom, here's why I'm here. So I think a little bit of it is that and just sort of learning kind of early on, like there are always going to be some types of people who won't take me seriously. Yeah. And so I think I just kind of learned to develop a thick skin around that and just try to find a way to lift myself up. Yeah. I feel like even nowadays, a lot of women in grad school, graduates, like especially at Stanford, when you talk to them, like, why are you here? It's honestly not to learn anything more. It's to have that other pedigree so people take them seriously off the bat. Like they get so annoyed with people dismissing them. They think more education will do it. Sometimes it does do it, but it's not that it doesn't help all the time. So it's gathering that thick skin. Everyone needs to start building it up. Yeah, for sure. So kind of making your way into a marketing architect. What You said three careers. Can we go through? Oh, yeah. The The third one was content marketing. So when I did join NatureBox, they're like, you know what? By the way, we are looking for someone to run our blog. 
maybe help with some social media, like some content stuff. Like, can you do that? And, you know, I've been interviewed and everything. Uh, and I got the job. And yeah, from there, I ran their blog because it was a startup, right? I think I joined as like employee number like 17, you know, mm-hmm. within the first 20 people. A lot of what I did was just kind of had to do with words. So the blog, helping with social media, helping with product marketing and positioning. I got to name some of the snacks. And then I ended up running... What was your favorite snack that you named? Oh my gosh, my favorite snack that I named... My favorite one is actually French toast granola. That was my favorite. Because it was like, I made that choice based on the different flavors of the granola. Like I looked at the ingredients. It was like, there was like some brown sugar. There was like sliced almonds, vanilla extract. I'm like, this is kind of seeming like... French toasty and it kind of tastes like French toast. <laughs> I mean, that's when your culinary school comes to help, right? <laughs> Does every- Yeah. Do you think everything you've dried out to this point, you still kind of use to this day or is it more like, okay, that's a past life, put it to bed, don't think about it again? Okay. Let's actually take a step back and be when a lot of the people listening are trying to find their passions, piecing together monetary streams so they can have a sustainable income. How did, like at what point I know you did a lot of exploring. You went to culinary school. You went into journalism. Was How did you think through those transitions? I think that's a very big aspect of don't stay in your lane is these transitions cause a lot of anxiety. But if you have a different mindset or what were you following to make sure you were staying true to yourself? Oh, gosh, that's a really, really good question. Because I think the one key thing here is I think you need to learn to be comfortable with change and discomfort and maybe sacrificing a few things in the short term. And so by that, I mean, you know, when I was doing culinary school, you know, I was something, I was around 25 years old. I was still working full-time in my tech journalism role, but working from home. So I very much had that privilege and luxury of being able to be at home, but I'd work all day, get changed, go to school at night. And culinary school was every weeknight was from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., So it was kind of a grind, right? Like I'd get up at like 8 a.m. to do work, would work until like maybe four or five-ish, go to school and then come back home and like be in bed by midnight. That was just every day for like nine months. It was tough in the sense that it's a lot of work. Yeah. But at the same time, like it was temporary. There was, you know, an end in sight. And my other reasoning was, you know, I was single, no kids. So I was kind of like, If I'm going to do something kind of like this, like take a risk or work really, really hard for a couple months, now is kind of the time. So I I thought about it like that. And in some ways, it didn't feel like a grind. I guess I call it a grind in retrospect, like as when I say it now, it, it was, but like at the time, it was fun. And I think it was because... Those were two very different worlds. Like I was the day, you know, I was at my just at my computer all day, like working on stuff. And then at night it was working in a kitchen and like doing a lot of physical work. So it was a very big switch. And so while I was tired, I didn't feel burnt out. Like I would go to bed tired, like, wow, what a full day. And I was always really happy throughout it. So if I was hustling or grinding or whatever, it didn't feel that way in the moment. So there was that. And I think it was also because I had that strong, that end goal in sight of like, I want to work in food or change my career. I mean, it was really just, I want to transform my career, right? Yeah. In that short term, like I knew I was going to be ready to be fun employed at some point. So I made sure I saved up enough money for this and I reduced my cost of living. And in that, I don't think I shopped for a whole year. 
And by shop, I mean like I only truly bought a necessity. Like I had to buy schools, uh, schools to buy shoes for culinary school. That was the thing I had to buy, but I didn't do like shopping. But it also didn't feel like a big sacrifice because I had that goal inside. It was like, oh, it's like a small thing that I'm gonna, you know, not do right now. Okay. When did you set that goal? Was that goal something you came to and then were like, okay, like this goal will take 12 months of education, nine months and then more? Or was, did you have that goal when you were a child? Did you always think of food and then you finally Mm -hmm. got the opportunity? Like, I think purpose finding is so difficult now with attention spans being shorter, shorter and getting interested in so many things. And we're exposed to so much more now. How did you navigate that? Like you're navigating passions. Yeah, I don't think I really had a passion for food until I was probably in my 20s, like until I moved out of my parents' house and like was on my own and like cooking with my roommate and baking more often. I think that was when I really realized I was passionate about food. So there was so that was that it wasn't something I had dreamed of since I was a kid. If anything, as a kid, I dreamed of being a journalist. And then things can change over time, right? Yeah. So I think with this, it was I decided when I saw that Le Cordon Bleu, where I went to culinary school, and they don't exist anymore. They shut down a couple years ago. But Le Cordon Bleu had this program that was half the cost and half the time geared towards people who worked full time. So once I saw the cost, I was like, oh, I I can afford this. Like, I'll, I'll take out some student loans. But this is within my reach. Like, this isn't a crazy cost. And then did the math of like, okay, what is my, what's my monthly cost of living? Like, what do I spend on? looking at my savings, my savings that did not include my retirement, but just like my regular bank savings. I'm like, okay, what do I have here? Like, what can I reasonably spend on my monthly expenses, like going forward? How much money am I going to need to save in order to be fun employed for X amount of time? And how long can I afford to not have a job? Yeah. So I kind of did all this little math in advance. That math is important. Everyone should do that. (laughs) Yeah, and I was in, and yeah. again to that point of being single and child free, it was okay. This is the only time in my life that I'm gonna have. I think my monthly exp- you, my monthly expenses were. I was able to get them down to under a thousand dollars a month. Amazing, which is kind of wild, right? Yeah, I think now it's hard to imagine, especially in California. But like yeah. at the time, my apartment it only cost me I think like we'll say seven around seven hundred dollars per month, and I had a roommate. So with my and I had I was able to reduce my other expenses drastically because I was so excited about this goal. I was willing to make all those cuts. Like like I said, I didn't do any shopping and stuff, but I never felt like, oh, gee, I wish I could do some shopping. Yeah, it just felt like, oh, I don't care. I'm not going to do this for a while because I'm doing this other thing that's a lot more important to me. Yeah, amazing. And then, did you ever think? That anxiety about the future set in or was it more like, okay, this is the present. I don't have a husband, don't have a kid yet to pay attention to all the time. Mm-hmm. This is the time to explore things or were you worried about the future too? Because I feel like it's very hard for young people to know that they're young. <laughs> and I, yeah. yeah. I think when it came down to it, I realized, okay, I think by the end of it, I figured I can afford, quote unquote, to not have a job for up to eight months. And that would be blowing through all my savings, which I did not want to do. But I was kind of like, okay, perspective, I'm young and impressionable. If this doesn't work out, I can go back to journalism. Like I will figure it out. Like of all the people who are in not good positions, I am probably someone who is 
least able to complain. So it was that. I think it was also just kind of being aware of my privilege. Like, I mean, that's, that really is part of it. And then also being knowing what I could do as a freelancer. Yeah. So it was also just like, like I mentioned earlier, I was doing some freelance work. And those were just, you know, little projects here and there where I could make a couple hundred bucks and like just kind of add to my my little bank of savings. That helped a lot too. And so knowing that knowing that I could fall back on opportunities like that was helpful. And then again, I say this being a very aware of privilege. I know that if it ever really came down to it, I could move back in with my parents. Yeah. That wasn't I mean, that wouldn't have been ideal, but it also wouldn't have been the end of the world. Yeah. I'm like I'm lucky that I have a good relationship with my parents and that would have been fine. And of all the bad things that could happen to you or that could happen to me. Yeah. That was not so bad. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I think it's hard, especially now with like this hype, I think technology is also an industry and like marketing content too. is all about like young people are over pushed to become great fast. And if you're over the age of 40, <laughs> they don't think about starting a new whatever, but it really does set in like you have all this flexibility and freedom now. If you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? Yeah. But what was the one thing kind of, so your next transition into content marketing, what kind of changed for you there? And then your mindset, how did you follow that passion as well? Yeah. So at the time, you know, content marketing was still in kind of its early days. There weren't a, there weren't a ton of people who were doing yeah. it really, really well. So it was still early days for that. And then that was, an area of marketing where I saw pretty easily like, oh, I already have some of the foundational skills for this. Like, I think a lot of content marketing is being a good writer. And then in terms of like ranking for SEO, a lot of it is needing that kind of journalism, that journalistic background to be like, okay, I need to be like unbiased and like have a lot of information, do some original research, like all that stuff that kind of, I'll just say inadvertently helps with SEO. So I saw that opportunity there. And was able to kind of grow my skills while in that function. So, yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And then when you got to content marketing, did it feel more like home or was it just like, okay, this is the next step, the next big thing? Do you feel like there's going to be a new next big thing coming soon and you have a fourth career or is this it? Huh. I think, I don't know. I mean, when I joined Naturebox, it very much was a dream role because it was, it involved food, it involved writing. And at the time, I think it was, they were even just like, hey, we need someone to create some original recipes using our snacks. Can you do that? And I was like, what? I would love to. <laughs> so in many ways, it was a dream job. Yeah. But like along the way, it was, I realized, like, I think within my first couple months, there was very much an, a need to improve our PR efforts, our public relations efforts. So at that point, I was like, oh, I was a journalist. Like, I can do this. Like, I know what's compelling to reporters. And then I realized like, oh, there are other areas of marketing that my skill set is very transferable. Yeah. And I thought that was, that was kind of fun. So I think as I sort of, as I had those gradual realizations, I also realized like, oh, maybe I don't want to be a food marketer forever. So it sort of became that. It sort of just became like, oh, I'm really interested in marketing in general. Yeah. Your mindset's very entrepreneurial. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see how you're thinking through things within a certain industry as an entrepreneur rather than like the what we think of as entrepreneurial, which is the founders building random putting random people together, making random companies exist. Yeah. So this is fun. But oh, sorry, keep going. This is really fun. Well, yeah. So like I so said, I was at Nature I was at Naturebox for I guess a year and a half. 
which in early startup years, it fe- that feels like four years. Yeah. And then I started applying for a couple of jobs, just kind of feeling like I wanted to kind of grow the playing field for myself. Yeah. Mark, I was just kind of ready for a, ne- a next step. And then a friend told me about the role at Fitbit, which was to be one of their early, I think their second B2B marketing hire. Until that point, I never considered B2B marketing. I just didn't really think about it that much. But when I saw the opportunity there, I felt like it was more aligned with my skills and my values in that in B2B marketing compared to B2C marketing, right? Usually the sales cycles are probably are longer because you're selling to other businesses, but you're also making a lot more money up front, right? So in a direct-to-consumer type of company, maybe you're selling snacks and it's $20 a month. Yeah. For, for each customer. But in the B2B marketing world, if you're selling software to a company, you could be making like 10 grand in one transaction or $20,000 or something like that. Yeah. And in that, in the B2B marketing world, that's where the content can go a longer way. So taking the B2C, the business to consumer example, if you're writing a blog post about jeans and you're an apparel yeah. company, like you're not really going to see ROI on that blog post maybe ever like if you can attribute it or like if you do maybe it's a couple of purchases yeah, yeah but at the same time when you do that in business to consumer marketing you're not writing a blog post in hopes of driving thousands of dollars right you can't you know that it's a it's part of a larger strategy yeah but in b2b marketing you could do something like an ebook or you could do a couple of blog posts or even just a single blog post might be easier to tie to revenue or pipeline And so what was exciting to me was the idea that you could get a lot, a really high ROI on the work that you're producing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then when what's other than B2B versus B2C in art, I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) I know I'm about to stumble. The what are things to keep it like their culture changes and like how you would work when you were doing B2B versus B2C or you would approach content with the lens of. What's the biggest differences? Huh. It's sort of tough to say because I was also going from one really small, scrappy startup Mm -hmm. to a much larger startup. So the it's kind of hard to zoom in and figure out what sort of those more immediate changes are. But I might say that like in moving to a bigger company, there are more resources already in place. So in the prior role at NatureBox, a lot of it was, you know, reaching out to my own freelance writers, getting together my own little network of like photographers, other bloggers, which was so much fun. Yeah. But at uh, moving over to Fitbit, then it became like, oh, we have a team of designers who can help you. We also have some other people in product marketing who can also help you. So there was, there got to be a lot more collaborative work because some of these structures were already in place. And then at the same time, even though I was still doing content, it was very different. Like at NatureBox, it was running the blog, Uh, running organic social media, and then moving over to Fitbit, uh, we didn't have a blog for the first couple years I was there because it just wasn't the need. It didn't support the need that we had at the time. So a lot of what I did was create white papers and eBooks and things that people in our target audience would download. So very different workflows. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then do you think design and marketing and content marketing changes company to company that much too, just from your experience seeing friends in the same industry, or is it pretty standardized now? I'm not sure. I guess it depends. I mean, like now at SparkToro, it's very different. Like we do have a blog, 
but we don't have like an SEO strategy behind it mm -hmm. because it doesn't support the needs of the business right now. Like right. in what we do right now, we do audience research. So we help uh, marketers or entrepreneurs, whoever, people. We help people find the sources of influence in their target audience. And we call it audience research. And so these are things that I don't think anybody's searching for yet. Like there's no one searching for, oh, I need some audience research, right? I think for most marketers, this is more of like, oh, I need to understand my audience better. Yeah. And there isn't really a search term for that. So as a result, we don't have a blog that's focused on that strategy. It's just our blog is more focused on what are some smart ways to do your job better? I don't know. Like that's kind of part of it. Okay. Amazing. Do you see what's your favorite workflow automation tool that you use right now? <laughs> if you have one. I have a couple of favorites. I've been really getting into Notion lately. Okay. I've been doing Marie Poulin's Notion Mastery course. Oh, cool. So, which is awesome. And I'm just, what I like about it is there are a lot of like repeatable templates you can create for yourself mm -hmm. or kind of anything, whether it's for to-dos or content creation. So there's that. And then I also just really love Zapier. My favorite little zap right now is I have a zap that copies events from my work calendar into my personal calendar. Yeah. And it's, it's just more helpful to make sure everything's synced up in one place. And also because my husband and I work full time and we tag team on childcare, it's just easier to have access to each other's calendars so that, you know, like he can know like, oh, like right now, Amanda's in a podcast interview and... <laughs> I can't really message her or like bother her. Yeah. Granted, yeah. if an emergency happens, it happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, no, everyone has access to my calendar always. <laughs> that's my number one rule. <laughs> like you should know what I'm up to. I'm very, I don't care about privacy. A lot of people have my location on their phone. A lot of people know exactly what I'm doing on social media. So it makes life easier just being so open and having a lot of people in your corner. Okay, so talking to people who are career pivoting, figuring out their next steps, do, what's your last piece of advice? Uh, my last piece of advice is right now, I feel like a theme that I'm seeing a lot is closed mouths don't get fed. If you want something, go for it. Ask someone for help, especially if you are a woman or a person of color, ask for help. Whether it's reaching out to someone maybe you don't know very well to say like, hey, I'm looking for a new job. Do you know anyone in this industry? Or would you mind taking a look at my resume? Things like that go a long way. And I really truly believe that most people are good and most people want to be helpful. So yeah, I mean, like, even if it's someone you might not know very well, yeah. more likely than not, they're going to want to help you. And I think it's important to remember that, be aware of it, and don't be afraid to ask for help. Thanks, Amanda. That's really good. I love closed mouths don't get fed. That's a great note to end up on. Yeah. Why? I'm not talking at all well today. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to figure out I need to be more caffeinated. Thank you again for taking the time to be here. Really do appreciate it. Your journey is quite inspiring. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sajud. This was fun. Yeah. Have a nice day. Bye.